verse 1 of the prophecy of Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And we're able to date that, as we talked about Sunday, in 762 B.C. Two years before the earthquake that happened about 760 B.C. I remind you what Amos said of himself. I'm a sheep herder. And that language is specific. The word in the Hebrew is sheep herder. It's not shepherd. It's as if Amos is making it clear that he's not shepherd in the, in the spiritual sense. He's not overseer in that kind of sense. He's just a sheep herder. Kind of a lower class guy, to be honest. Long about chapter 7, we read this Sunday as well, verse 14, he said, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I'm not in that class. I'm not clergy. He says, I am a herdsman and a grower, or literally a gatherer, of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. The impetus of the prophecy of Amos is, was the Lord, and not Amos. If it had been left up to Amos, he would have been among the figs and the flocks. And we went over that Sunday, but I, we got to sit here a little bit longer and understand something. He's a sheep herder and a gatherer of sycamore figs. In the Hebrew, that's boles, a gatherer. It indicates an even lower rung than we may have suspected. Gatherer in the Hebrew, bolas, it's synonymous with country bumpkin. <laughs> That's what a Jewish person would have said if they were referring to someone who is, you know, someone who's, who's out in the country. Someone who's, this is, this is not someone who's, who's a man of renown. The first century Roman historian Pliny described the sycamore fig itself as lightly esteemed. He indicated that it was commoners' fare, that well-off people did not eat the sycamore fig. But those in poverty, those who were, who were in the lower classes, they would eat it because they could afford to. He gathered sycamore figs gang, because that's what he could afford as a herder of flocks. Kyle, from the commentary by Kyle and Delich in the Old Testament, is one of the best Old Testament commentaries out there. He said, we have to regard Amos as a shepherd living in indigent circumstances. Not as a prosperous man possessing both a flock of sheep and a sycamore plantation, which many commentators have tried to make him out to be. Now, I know I'm belaboring the point a bit for you. We talked about Amos as the little guy on Sunday. But while it may not seem to matter much in the grander scheme of of biblical theology where he came from, it does go to those whom the Lord calls. And I hope you got that point on Sunday if you didn't let me underscore it. Kyle said without having dedicated himself to the calling of a prophet, without even being trained in the schools of the prophets, he was called by the Lord away from the flock to be a prophet to prophesy concerning Israel. What that means, what that tells us and what the scripture is very clear about is calling is everything. Calling is everything. Our theology would be absolutely worthless without calling. There are many theologians out there who don't even believe in Jesus. It's a waste of their time. 
to study the Scripture for the Scripture's sake alone. To have all manner of head knowledge and history and archaeology stored up in your brain. And to be able to traverse your way through the Scriptures, but not believing in Jesus, it is absolutely a waste of your time. Calling is everything. Calling settles the matter of eternity. Your calling confirms your hope. It affirms our mission. It strengthens our resolve. It empowers the little guy. Calling. And Amos received, and note this, I'm going to give you five or six things to take us through the study tonight. Number one, Amos received a powerful impartation. A powerful impartation. This sheep herder, this fig picker was called by God. And in that calling, and it's obvious through the prophecy, he receives the impartation of the Spirit of Christ. He comes on the scene as a prophet with great words and words of intense power. This man who comes among the herdsmen and, and the fishermen and the lower class and the people who have to pick figs just to eat something for dinner. He's called, he's anointed, he's imbued with power. And I want to remind you tonight, if you are in Christ, you are called. We need to get away from the thinking in the church that some are called and others are not. If you are in the church, you are among the called. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been called. You are belonging to Him as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.24, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're a Christian, you're called. It's the way it works. You don't become a Christian without receiving a calling to be a Christian. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. That's not against your will. You have an open heart, you have a choice, but the Lord is putting it out before you. The Lord is inviting, the Lord is calling. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Why aren't more Christians walking worthy? Probably because more Christians don't realize they've been called. Oh yeah, I, I go to church. Yeah, I gave my life to Jesus, but, but you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor I'm not a worship leader. I'm not one of those elder guys, you know. I'm not on any committees. If you are following Jesus, you're called. With the same calling of Amos. The same calling of every person who comes to faith in Jesus. Don't walk worthless. Walk worthy. Walk worthy of your calling. How do I do that? Stop walking in your own esteem and start walking in God's esteem. Here's a mind-blowing thought, something we were talking about earlier at prayer. God chose you. God wants you. The Lord called you. And that is a powerful impartation. And Amos is a great picture of that. Just a common guy from Tekoa, but he's called. And the moment he's called, he receives this powerful impartation, the spirit of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel, or the head of Carmel, dries up. He establishes right there where the authority is coming from. As Amos comes roaring into the northern kingdom, he says, and by the way, the roar is not mine, it comes from Jerusalem. 
That's where the Lord utters His voice. From Zion. Which kind of wipes away the whole idea of golden calves and Dan and Bethel. You know, prophets and Gilgal. The authority flows from Zion. Comes out of Jerusalem. And Amos sets that up. Now what he's going to do here following is bring judgment. Amos, the one-time sheep herder, is now going to bring heavy, weighty judgment into northern Israel. And he starts with eight different judgments on eight nations in chapters 1 and 2. Think of it as a storm rolling in. And wave after wave of this storm begins to hit as each nation is called out. Beginning in verse 3, he says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. Remember we talked about the threshing sledge in a previous study? Big, massive, heavy metal sledges that had spikes in them and they could drag that along the ground to break up the hard, rocky, fallow ground. What you may not know is historically when one nation conquered another in the days of Amos, sometimes they would use the threshing sledge on their victims. And that's what he's talking about here. That Aram, the Arameans, there in Damascus, which is, you know, Syria today, threshed the people of Gilead. So I will send fire upon the house of Hatzael, who is the king of Aram, who brought about this threshing of Gilead. And it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad, who is the son of Hatzael, the king of Aram. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avain and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. So the people of Aram will go exiled to Kerr, says the Lord. Now, people love to grab that kind of thing and say immediately, oh, it's talking about Syria. Is that what's happening right now? No, that's what's happened. That's what already happened. Okay, and in this case, we know. He's very specific about this particular judgment. Not that there aren't judgments on Syria that are future tense. But in this case, the specificity and the way we've seen it fulfilled in history, we can pretty well know he was talking about the Aramans and what happened to them. Remember, for three transgressions or for four indicates the tipping point. It indicates one sin too many, the last straw. And historically, these judgments were precisely executed. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 9 tells us the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away and into exile into Kerr, which is just what the prophet Amos said would happen. And they put Rezin, the king of Aram, to death. The Aramaeans, this is amazing, the Aramaeans originally came from this place called Kerr. And now they go into exile back to Kerr, and it's as though the Lord is bringing about a massive reversal of all of Aram's proud history, just turning it around on them. You came out of this little location, you became a great nation, and now you're going right back where you came from because of my judgment on your sin. So Aram, second wave of the storm, verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they deported the entire population, an entire population, to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and will consume her citadels, and I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, 
and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron. These are the four, four actually, of the five major cities of the Philistines. Philistia. The fifth city was Gath. Gath had already been destroyed. So at the time of the prophecy of Amos, there's just four cities of the Philistines left. They still were a very proud, nationalistic, independent people. And yet the Lord says, you're going down. And note specifically, he says, the remnant of the Philistines will perish. I'm taking them out. Each judgment is specific. And while each nation is judged, the Philistines are the only ones, aside from Israel, that are told that we're told would perish as a nation. Wait, Israel perished, but I thought they were still around. We'll, we'll get there. But the Philistines perished. They were routed by Assyria. But even after they were routed by Assyria, they still, though they paid tribute, maintained some independence. Maintained some nationalistic fervor. Until a man by the name of Alexander the Great came along And after conquering major nations, came right down the Mediterranean seacoast in 332 B.C. and wiped out the Philistines once and for all. From then on, they ceased to exist as a nation at all. Wiped off the face of the earth, dying off, or those who remained individually assimilated. Guess where they assimilated? Into and among the Jewish people. The Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel, assimilated into the primarily dominant Jewish population in the land. I think the Palestinian Authority would love that. Because that's what happened historically. Now, note this, before we move on to the next judgment, there's something that Amos does. He uses two unique names for the Lord. And here's the first time we see one of these, and it is at the end of verse 8, the Lord God. The Lord God is literally Adonai Yahweh. It can be translated Sovereign Lord. The Sovereign Lord. Amos uses that phrase for the Lord. He names the Lord Adonai Yahweh 19 times in his small book. The other minor prophets use that same name five times among them all. So Amos is big on referring to the Lord as the Sovereign Lord. The second name, which we won't see until we get down a bit further into chapter 3, the second name is Adonai Yahweh Sabah, which means the Sovereign Lord of Armies. And Amos is going to use that seven times. Adonai Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh Sabah, Sovereign Lord of Armies. Because God is coming, as it were, in a military tribunal. He is coming to, to judge with armies. He's going to call armies to do His bidding. Those armies, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, right on down the line, these great warriors, these great warrior nations will do the exact bidding of the Lord. And we know it's His bidding because He tells us ahead of time that it's His bidding. He names Cyrus. He calls forth Nebuchadnezzar. God uses the present day armies and nations to bring about His own judgment. The next one. Third wave now. Verse 9, For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. 
Because they delivered up an entire population to Edom. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre. And it will consume her citadels, Tyre. That's Lebanon today. And before wiping out the Philistines, Alexander the Great came upon Tyre. And we talked about this in a, a previous study back in Ezekiel 26. We talked about the absolutely brilliant overthrow of Tyre by Alexander the Great. Because the, Tyre, the people of Tyre had moved out to the island rock capital off the coast. They had massive stores there. And so they were able to exist for a long time. And other conquering armies couldn't figure out how to get over there. And even the Greek army couldn't figure out how to conquer the capital of Tyre. They would just sit over there across the waves and taunt Alexander. And Alexander figured it all out, how to get across there and how to waste the people of Tyre. If you want to hear about that, go back and listen to Ezekiel 26. But it happened 332 B.C. on the way down to destroy the Philistines. Verse 11. Next wave, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. While he stifled his companion, his anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. I will send fire upon Taman and it will consume the citadels of Basra. And I'm not going to say much about Edom right now. It's southern Jordan today. God did exactly what He said He would do, but we will get the fuller judgment in the book of Obadiah. We'll read the whole judgment on Edom and we'll talk more about it at that time. Southern Jordan today, I've told you all before, is an absolute wasteland. It is dry, it is cracked, nothing grows there, people don't live there, it's absolutely desolate, exactly as the Lord said it would be. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Ammon, that's northern Jordan. Verse 1, chapter 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kiriot, and Moab will die amid tumult with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all her princes with him, says the Lord, and he did. And Moab is mid-Jordan. Ammon in the north, Moab in the middle, Edom in the south. We've talked about these things. And I read that and I've got to ask a question. Who cares if the Moabites had a bonfire? A bonefire. That's actually where the word bonfire comes from. The burning of bones. And the king of Edom, his bones are burned by the people of Moab. Why does the Lord care? The Moabites and the Edomites were both wicked, so who really cares anyway? Just wipe them out and be done with it. The Sovereign Lord cares. Why? We'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. 
Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So, I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. And he did. Eric Klein wrote a book called Jerusalem Besieged. And in that book he tells us the city of peace has known at least 118 conflicts in its history. 40 devastating captures and at least 23 sieges in its long beleaguered history. It has been destroyed and built upon and destroyed and built upon and destroyed and built upon over 35 times. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace. Klein tells us there are layers of history in Jerusalem that go down in some places 60 feet. The city's been there 4,000 years. And it's been conquered and destroyed and built upon and conquered and destroyed and built upon. Of course, you know the greatest devastations were in 586 B.C. when Babylon destroyed and again in 70 A.D. when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And when you look back across that long history of what originally was called Salem and then Jebus and then ultimately Jerusalem, when you look at its history, the only times that Jerusalem, the city of peace, has known peace has been when the people dwelling there acknowledged the king of peace. And they will again. The prince of peace will come. And he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. But it's the acknowledgement of the sovereign Lord that brings peace. And all of this devastation is because Jerusalem continued to deny the sovereign Lord, the King of Peace. Final wave, which will take us through the rest of the book of Amos. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So the eighth nation is Israel, and he didn't revoke the punishment. Israel now becomes the subject of the rest of the prophecies of Amos. But I want to stop there just for a moment. Before we go on, ask the question, why bother with the other nations? Because the prophecy of Amos, he was sent to bring judgment to Israel. So why start with seven other nations in addition to Israel? Why does the Lord bring this prophecy to all of them? And again, who cares if Moab burned the bones of the king of Edom? Lamentations 3.22 tells us the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the reason that God brings these judgments now is because He's faithful. You know what's amazing? In the midst of these judgments, there's grace. There is grace for all of the surrounding nations. God is bringing grace. Most of these prophecies that He presents here will be fulfilled centuries down the line. The point is, we see God's nature in the fact that He brings these prophecies long before their fulfillment, I believe, to give the nations an opportunity to change direction. And He always does that. For 6,000 years, the Lord has been prophesying of the day of the Lord. He's been telling about that. Why? Because He's a God of grace. Because He wants people to hear and repent and turn to Him and be saved. 
So from the very beginning, he starts laying it out. Seventh generation from Adam, he tells Enoch, tell them, I saw the Lord coming with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment. Tell them now. Well, Lord, we got 6,000 years. Tell them now. Because He's a God of grace. And so all these other nations, it's remarkable. They all get the word of the Lord just like Israel does. They all hear from God. Well, they're all spoken to by God. They don't hear from God because they're deaf. Equally deaf to Israel. But I want you to note that. See God's nature in this. Something I think about a lot is the one reason why Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land was he misrepresented God. He struck the rock in anger when the Lord told him, speak to the rock to bring water for the people. Moses got mad, so he figured God was mad, and he struck the rock, and he called the people morons, and, and, and the Lord said, that's not me. I didn't tell you to do that. You misrepresented me to the people, therefore you won't lead the people into the promised land. I never want to misrepresent God, because I want to go to the promised land. And I often think when we go through the Scriptures, and we're reading this history, and we're looking at this prophecy, I think about the fact that what God is doing here is representing Himself to us. He's trying to help us see through all of these things who He is, not just what He's doing. That's important. But what He's doing goes to who He is. And He is a God of all grace. He is a God who is absolutely faithful. The Sovereign Lord. He is impartial to every person and to every nation. He's impartial with grace. He is impartial in judgment because that's who He is. You want to see something of God tonight? Look at His lack of bias. His perfect impartiality. That's the second thing to note there, by the way. Number two, a perfect impartiality. Psalm 19 verse 9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Revelation 19 says the same thing. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord because all of His judgments are true and righteous. And by the way, we're the ones who say that in Revelation 19. God is the standard of truth and righteousness and faithfulness and grace and, yes, judgment. His grace is amazing and His judgment is astounding because both grace and judgment are part and parcel of the very nature of God. Anytime you study or consider God's grace, anytime you read about God's judgment... Remember that he has a perfect impartiality. Why does Amos send to Israel start with two full chapters of judgments to all these other nations? Because as Romans 2.11 tells us, there is no partiality with God. He's impartial. What, you thought he was just going to judge Israel and leave everybody else alone? Think he's just going to go after this group of people and these people can get away with whatever? No. He is 100% impartial. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Paul develops that theme of God's impartiality. Everybody gets treated absolutely fairly. And in Romans 3 verse 9, he says, Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And so understand this, people of God or not, God is going to be fair. Believers in Jesus or not, God is going to be absolutely 100% impartial. 
Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. If you really believe and understand God to be impartial, and He is, that really ought to affect the way you live your life, Peter says. And then he goes on to say, Knowing this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So what does that mean for us? It means, bottom line, Jesus hasn't saved me because I'm His faithful follower. I'm His faithful follower because He saved me. See, He did the work. So that the impartial judgment of God, when it falls to me, goes through Him. It's not hard to get, as Christians, especially in the world today, it's not hard to get a little us versus them. Maybe you guys don't feel that way. Um, Our team versus their team. Christians versus atheists. Rah, rah, go team, go. Go my favorite sports team. We're right, they're wrong, that's the deal. And I I can think that way sometimes. And I can look at non-believers and non-Christians, and I say this to my shame, I can look sometimes at a non-believing person as someone who's just simply wrong. The truth is, I'm only right because I follow the one who's right. That's the only thing that makes me right. I follow him, and he's right. I know he's right. It's like walking along, it's like a child walking along behind a parent out hiking somewhere and telling the rest of the children, I know the way, as they're watching the parent. They don't know where they're going. Dad does. And that's the deal. We are only right, we are only righteous because he is. And when we step into this area of the impartiality of God, we need to understand, yes, He loves you. But He loves your lost friend every bit as much. Yeah, He forgives you, but His forgiveness is extended to every sinner in the world exactly as much. And again, the only difference between the Christian, the follower of Jesus, and the non-Christian is have you received the forgiveness? Have you accepted His impartial grace that is given to everybody. Peter also says in 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. God, thank you for making me a Christian. Thank you that I get to take flack for being known as a Christian in this world. And then Peter says this, and we've read this a few times recently, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Why? Because God is impartial. Because if He's going to judge one person, He's going to judge everybody. And it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if with us first, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God be? I mean, think about that. So, these eight once-judged nations, well, this is interesting, they're all back in place in this world, in these days. Tyre, Lebanon, Aram, Syria, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Jordan, and Gaza. Well, Rick, you said the Philistines were completely wiped out and assimilated. They were. The Palestinians are not Philistines. But check this out. 
they demand to be recognized as the ancient Philistines. I don't think I'd be demanding that. Because if you demand to be recognized as an ancient Philistine, you get all the rights and privileges thereof. Which includes a judgment that says you will be completely wiped out. You will perish. And I don't know but that God may yet honor that prophecy. Verse 6, let's go on. So now we get into Israel and the judgment of Israel. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And by the way, that that phrase sounds a little odd. What it is is those who trample or snap at the head of the helpless in the dust. It's probably a better way to look at this. It's just walking over those who are indigent. It says, And a man and his father resort to the same girl. Ooh. In order to profane my holy name. Verse 8, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. What is all this talking about? He lays out four indictments here. There in verse 6, bribery and slavery. In verse 7, sexual immorality, a man and his father resort to the same girl. Now that may refer to temple prostitution, but it doesn't really matter because the man and his father are both going to the same temple prostitute. And even if it's not that, if they're sharing the same woman, it's all immorality. Right? It's all sexual immorality that, that he's talking about there. And then the fourth thing is exploitation. Verse 8, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. What he's saying there, in the Jewish law, in Torah law, one of the requirements was if someone needs your cloak, give it to them. Loan it to them, let them have it. But if they do that, you're required to give it back. You need to bring it back to them. They weren't doing that. And so this is one specific little thing. And there are probably hundreds of things that the Lord could point out, but He pulls out these four. Bribery, slavery, immorality, exploitation. And the real issue here is He says, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. What does that mean? It means they're ripping off each other personally, but they're showing up at church with their tithes and offerings. They're taking communion together while treating each other shamefully. Now, they weren't taking communion, but you you understand the parallel I'm making here. They went to temple. They kept bringing their offerings. They kept making their tithes. They kept offering up things on the altar. They came to worship. They went to church. And they were treating each other horribly. Number three in your notes, a pretentious impiety. Not a pretentious piety. They weren't even pretending to be religious. They were acting religious while being absolutely impious, irreligious. And there's a word for that in our world today. Secularism. And we've talked about being secular before. The whole idea that you can separate your life into segments. That's being secular. That you can separate your spiritual life from your personal life, from your business, from your social life. You just kind of separate and you are different in each one of those segments. Man, when I'm at work, i got to swing that silver sword. i got to kill some people. It's just the way it is. When I'm out with my friends, of course I'm going to drink up because that's what we do. When I'm at church, I've got my Bible in my lap and I'm taking notes. Because that's what I do there. Secularism. 
compartmentalizing spiritual and non-spiritual segments of your lives. God is pointing this out in Israel and saying, not okay. You know why it's not okay? Because it doesn't work. Because it's a lie. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. You've heard this verse, but apply it here. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now when Paul says that, he doesn't say, carry your Bible to church. Open up the word of Christ on occasion and read it for your edification. He says, let it dwell within you. Hey, if God's word dwells within me, guess what? It doesn't matter where I am, His word is dwelling. His word is alive. As Paul says, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I want the word in me wherever I go, whatever I'm doing. And I need it, because you know what happens? When I'm in a location that I maybe shouldn't be, or, or a place where there are issues going on around me that I need my discernment up, if I have the Word of Christ richly dwelling within me, God tells me, hey, don't do that. Hey, don't go there. Hey, be alert. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. In other words, don't secularize, don't separate, don't compartmentalize your life. Integrate it. We have a word for that. Integrity. Integrity is very simply integrating all aspects of your life into one before God the Father. And it means you are a follower of Jesus no matter where you are and what you're doing. That influences your life. Following Christ. And it wasn't going on in Israel. Verse 9, Yet it is I, the Lord says, who destroyed the Amorite before them. He says, Though his height was like the height of cedars, And he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. The Lord is pointing out there is no great massive nation in the world's history that is greater than the Lord. That can stand against the judgment of God. I judge the Amorite, they're gone. They were picking off, taking out the people of Israel, I took them out. Even though they were huge, big guys, I took them down. And then he says, verse 10, It is I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And I led you in the wilderness 40 years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. And then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord, that you made the Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. King, the Nazarites had three rules. If you wanted to be a Nazarite, you did no drinking. You couldn't cut your hair, which is kind of cool. You could be a hippie, but no drinking. So no pot either. (laughs) And thirdly, don't touch dead things. And you're a Nazarite, and you're devoted to the Lord. Your long hair was a symbol of that. The not drinking was a symbol of your sobriety, of your soberness in how you lived your life before the Lord. And not touching dead things because, man, if you're living for the Lord, you live alive. And so that was the Nazarite. But they quelled the Nazarite. Here, drink up, dude. And then they told the prophet, be quiet. Shut up. Behold, he says, verse 13, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon that is weighted down when filled with sheaves. 
I like this. It's actually that word weighted down means tottering. The Lord says, I feel like a tottering wagon underneath all your garbage. Under all your stuff. And he says in verse 14, Flint will perish, or flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. All their hidden, secularized, self-deluded sin is about to be integrated in them in a devastating way. He's bringing it all to bear. Chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which He brought up from the land of Egypt. So now when He says this, He's talking not just about the northern kingdom, He's talking about everybody. This is the word for everybody to hear. And He says in verse 2, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And I know I've shared this, but it just cracks me up. I, I, I read this and I think of Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. Right? And when he says, Lord, I know we're your chosen people, but couldn't you for once choose someone else? He says, I chose you from all the families of the earth. And normally you would say, cool, I'm one of the chosen. And then he says, therefore, I will punish you. <laughs> Choose someone else, Lord. I don't want that. Listen, it is better to be under judgment in the household of God than to be happy-go-lucky in the world. Because if you're under judgment in the household of God, it is judgment for correction. It is judgment for salvation. It is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I think the church is under judgment right now. I, you know, I could be wrong about this. But as I look at the church today, and I read about what's going on, and I'm aware of so many things, and many of you are aware of these as well, I think the dividing line has been cast. And I think choices of morality and biblical integrity, the line is out. And what we're seeing, and I shared this on Sunday, what we're seeing right now is Philadelphia and Laodicea. We're seeing the church of the open door. The church that will be saved from the tribulation. The church that Jesus loves. The church that He had nothing bad to say about in Revelation chapter 3. And then we have the church of the lukewarm. Who He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The church of the lukewarm is the church of the tolerance. It's the church that says, well, maybe the Bible meant this once, but doesn't mean it now. It's the church that is undermining morality for the sake of you know being cool and being up to date with culture. And that's Laodicea. And then there's Philadelphia. And I want to be in Philadelphia. Not right now, it's kind of hot out there, but I mean the church. I want to be the church of Philadelphia. This is why we talk about evangelism so much. The church of the open door. I have set before you an open door. Man, go through it. Bring people into it. Be about my business and be faithful to my word. He says, because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will also keep you from that hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world. Philadelphia. 
Keep the perseverance. Hang in there. Maintain the word of truth no matter what happens in the world or in the church around us. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Now the Lord asks a series of seven rhetorical questions. Verse 3, Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Now you might not like that translation. Maybe you've heard the King James Version, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And that's the stuff of some really sweet teaching on interpersonal unity. But that's not what the verse is about. I'm sorry to under, you know, cut this one. Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? It's not about unity. That's not what he's talking about here. The Hebrew word ya'ad there, can two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? The Hebrew word ya'ad means to make an appointment. <laughs> okay? Just, you know, I've given you the obvious. To make an appointment. So can two people walk together unless they have agreed to walk together? Unless they've made an appointment? Unless they've said, hey, let's make a meeting. You can say, hey, Rick, can we get together for coffee this next week? And I can say, great, let's do it. And you say, far out. And you leave. Are we going to get together for coffee? No, because we haven't made an appointment. We haven't said, let's get together. In the context, what these rhetorical questions are all about is they are situations that must be preceded by another situation. Alright? Understand that. These are before, after questions. Can two people walk together unless they first have set an appointment to get together and walk? No, it's not going to happen unless you plan for it to happen. And that's the idea behind the first and the rest of the questions. How can we meet unless we've made an appointment? Verse 4. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den? Unless he has captured something. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? See, there's before and after in every one of these before and after effects. And finally he says, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? (laughs) I could spend a lot of time on that one I won't because we've talked about it God's hand is in everything He is the sovereign Lord so if a tragedy occurs the Lord's hand is in it one way or another remember when a tragedy occurs Satan's hand is in it to try and bring about disaster and destruction and death when a disaster or a tragedy occurs God's hand is in it to bring about His greater and more eternal will usually it's about getting our attention Fixed, fixed back on Him. But for every one of these, for every after, there is a before, even with the calamity. And so what these questions underscore is, number four in your notes, a profound interrelationship. A profound interrelationship. God is underscoring a relationship that has a before and an after effect. Look back at verse 2 again. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Before and after. I chose you. Therefore, I am going to punish you. It is precisely, get this, it is precisely because the Lord chose Israel that He must punish Israel. 
That, that he, he can't leave them in a sinful state. Otherwise, it would nullify his choosing of them. Do you get that? I choose you. But if you remain sinful, my choice doesn't work because you can't be with me. So I'm going to do what is necessary. I'm going to punish you to drive the sin out so that you can be with me, which is what I originally chose you to be in the first place. I chose you, therefore I must punish you. And that is the profound interrelationship. And get this, brothers and sisters, when you enter a relationship with God, He can't just look the other way when you sin. When I fail Him, He doesn't just go, oh, no biggie. He deals with it. Because He wants me to be with Him. Because He desires me to walk with Him. He chose me to choose Him so that I can be where He is. And so sin must be dealt with. Proverbs 3.11 My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. If your life is not going the way you want it to go, if you're having troubles and struggles and difficulties, don't blame the Lord. Don't reject His reproof. Recognize He loves you so much that He will do whatever it takes to keep your attention on Him. To keep you relating to Him. The Hebrew writer quoted Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And then he went on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 to say, it's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. He's going to discipline because he loves. So when he says, I chose you, Israel, you need to hear his heart just beating. For the people he chose, he desired to love. In other places he says, Jacob, have I loved? And so, because of that, i got to punish you. I can't just let this go. Christian brothers and sisters, God did something absolutely amazing. Talk about the profound interrelationship. Because, see, we deserve His wrath. We deserve His punishment. And yet, He gave grace. Now, some in the church would say, I'm under grace, so what's the punishment deal? I don't need to be punished for sin, because i got grace. And, by the way, I can do pretty much whatever I want because I have grace. (laughs) Please understand that grace is not the simple bypassing of punishment. Grace is not God looking at you, looking at me and saying, okay, you're a filthy sinner, but you know what? Since you believe in me, it's okay. That's not grace. Never forget this. The punishment for your sin and for mine still happened. He didn't just take it off the shelf. It happened. It just didn't happen to me. It happened to Jesus. The scourge cut across His back. The thorns dug into His brow. Nails pierced His hands and His feet. The spear was plunged deep into His side. The wrath of God was poured out because of my sin. Jesus took the punishment. Now God will still discipline me. God will still do what it takes in my life to sanctify me and draw me after Him. But when it comes to the punishment for sin, it happened. Oh, it happened big time on the cross of Christ. 
Here's a rhetorical question for you. Would Christ have gone to the cross at all without first there being a great wrath needing to be satisfied? He went to the cross so that the wrath of God that should have been mine, should have been yours, could be satisfied. And any other view of the cross cheapens grace. Verse 7 going on. So get that. The inner relationship is profound. He says, I love you. I chose you. Therefore, I have to punish you. Verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. So here comes Amos. And Amos actually is defending his prophetic calling. He's saying, God, it's not my word. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what He told me to tell you. He says, verse 8, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. And get this, who can but prophesy? Or in other words, God has spoken. How can I keep my mouth shut? God has poured His Word into me. I've got to get it out. I think about in the book of Revelation, chapter 10, John comes up and he's handed a little book. The book is the Word of God. It's representative. He eats the book. Then he goes, oh, it's sweet to to taste, but it was bitter in my stomach. And then the, the people around him, in the heavenlies, they say, you got to prophesy again. What are they telling him? It's like Ipecac syrup, man. Your stomach's bitter. You got to get it out. You got to puke it up. And not to be gross, but seriously, the word comes in, and the more we ingest the word, the sweeter it is, but there's a bitterness there because we know what the reality is. And so the way you deal with it is you get it out. You speak the word. Jeremiah said the same thing. If I say, Jeremiah 20, verse 9, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name. Then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. The prophet Jeremiah. I have to prophesy. Peter and John. Acts chapter 4 verse 20. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. You can tell us all you want. You can throw us in jail. You can beat us. You can, you can threaten us. But we have to talk about it. Because we've seen it, we've heard it, we cannot keep from talking about it. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul said, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I love that. He said, I'm compelled. I couldn't stop preaching if I wanted to. I have to. Why? Because the word came in. And when the word comes in, you got to get the word out. And my friends... I am no prophet, but I believe the day is coming when we may be called upon to to say this same thing in our world. God has spoken. How can I not prophesy? Don't read Romans chapter 1. It's bigotry. How can I not prophesy? You need to avoid those passages in Leviticus. How can I not prophesy? Certain aspects of the Bible are hate speech. How can I not prophesy? God has spoken. And I've got to speak the word He's given. Verse 9. Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right. 
declares the Lord. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels, they're like Paul's letter to Timothy. They're people with a seared conscience. My people Israel don't even know right and wrong anymore. They have no clue. Why Ashdod in Egypt? Why is, is Amos being told to proclaim there? Or, or why is he saying proclaim it in Ashdod, proclaim it in Egypt? Primarily because these two cities represented the height of hedonism and heathenism in the day. And so these two cities are being called upon by the Lord. They're being subpoenaed as witnesses against Israel's paganism. That's how bad Israel has gotten. When the Lord is calling on the Philistines and calling on the Egyptians and saying, you want to see bad? Come look at Samaria. Come look at my people. That's sin. That's paganism. That's bad. So they're called upon to witness the paganism. They're also called upon, and they would, to witness, number five, a punishing invasion. A punishing invasion. Verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with a corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. What exactly is he saying here? The people were going to be brutally dragged right out of their homes. Some of them still clinging to couch cushions and bed sheets. Grasping for anything they can as the Assyrians are tearing them from their homes. It's a very graphic picture. The idea of a shepherd trying to grab hold of that little lamb and save what he can. Or hold on, cling to, for dear life to that little lamb that the lion is now tearing away. And and can you imagine that? The people being ripped out of their homes like this. Women clutching maybe that that oil lamp that the husband bought her uh, at their marriage. And she's holding on to that one thing. She's clutching it. It it makes me think of there's a phrase, a phrase that that we use kind of commonly, and it's grasping for straws. It's grasping for straws. You can't get your fingers around it. You know where grasping for straws comes from? What it means? I've wondered this. I wonder these things. In 1748, a British writer named Samuel Richardson coined the phrase. In a book that he wrote, very popular at the time, and the phrase was, a drowning man will catch at a straw. The straw is a reed at the river's edge. It's like you're being swept away in a flood and you're trying to grab something to save you, but it's a reed and it's just going to snap and down the river you go. There is no salvation in it. It's not strong enough. And it's sad to me. What a picture. How how people will grasp and grope at straws thinking it'll save them. Thinking if, if I can grab hold of this, these fragile things in our lives that seem so important, but they are sure to be lost. They're not going to survive. And neither will we as we grab hold of them. Ooh, grab onto my bank account and hold on tight. Well, good luck with that one. You know? Well, as long as I protect my house, I've been in my house 10 years and everything's going wrong. <laughs> Stuff just starts to break and I'm like, I'm going back to renting. That's it. <laughs> yeah, dude, I just need this thing fixed over here. Call the guy, you know? Now I'm the guy. It's sad. 
And Jesus said in Matthew 16.25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, grasping for straws. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The river's raging, the army is invading, and Jesus says, let go and just trust me. Just, just hang on to me. I'm no straw. He's not a straw man. <laughs> He's Jesus. He's solid. He's rooted. And there is no being lost when you're holding on to Him. And so Paul said in Philippians 3.12, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. That is beautifully worded. Paul says, I'm grabbing on to Jesus who already grabbed hold of me. Well, that's good news because if, if I let go... He won't. If I get scared, He's got me. He's already laid hold of me. And so Paul says, so I'm going to lay hold of Him. When I baptize people, I do this thing, and if if you've been baptized with me or by me, you know that I like to grab a person's left wrist, have them grab my right wrist. And so we're kind of locked in there together. And then I put my hand behind their head, and I haven't lost one yet. It's pretty good. Is Brian still here? So we're in Israel, right? And we go down into the Jordan to baptize, and Brian's helping me out. He, I just I love Brian. Understand that. I'm, I'm going I'm to you know, rip on him for a minute, but I love him. So we go down into the waters of the Jordan, you know, and, and they're, they're not flowing fast or anything, it's, but, but it's kind of slick underneath. And so we're standing there, and I, I baptize someone, got the lock. You know, we're, we're good. You know, I'm laying hold of them. They're laying hold of me together. We're good. And then Brian goes to baptize someone. I, I, about half our group almost went down the Jordan. <laughs> and it comes to Brian's mom. <laughs> he goes to baptize her and he kind of puts her down in the water. Well, she doesn't quite go all the way in. She's, she's scrambling to come back up and he hasn't gotten her all the way in. So he shoves her under the water. You know? <laughs> And we're like calling for medics. Get some Israelis over here to save this woman from her son. Hilarious. Hilarious. Where was I? Anyway, so laying hold. (laughs) Christ has already laid hold of me. So even if I'm flailing, He's got me. He's got me. Grasping for straws. A punishing invasion. Verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Declares the Lord God. There it is, the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh. The God of hosts, Sabah. Adonai Yahweh, Sabah. It's the first time you see that. You'll see it several more times. The sovereign Lord of armies is what it means. Verse 14, For on that day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house, that is the posh dwellings of the of the upper crust of Samaria and perhaps the king of Samaria, Jeroboam II as well. The houses of ivory will also perish. The great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. It's all window dressing. All of your houses, your cars, your stuff built up there in the land of Samaria, it's all going down. I'm going to take it apart. Their riches and glory would fail. Now, learn from history. When a people reject God, turn away from God, the riches, the glory, the strength, the splendor of the nation will fail. It always has. It always will. 
like reeds at the water's edge. And I'll tell you, dust ruffles are poor flotation devices. Chapter 4. And we're going to move quickly, so buckle up. The Lord turns His attention to the pampered, aristocratic, and alcoholic women of Samaria. Verse 1. Hear this word, you cows. That just kills me. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. Well, that's not very nice, Pastor. How do you know that it's women he's talking about? Oh, read on. (laughs) Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks. And the Assyrians did. And the last of you with fish hooks. And I've told you before, they took fish hooks and they put them in the jaws of their captors. And there would be like a, a, a metal ring hooked onto the fish hook. And they would take rope and run it through these metal rings. And you'd have this long line of people enslaved, taken into captivity with fish hooks hanging off of their jaws, attached by rope to the person in front of and behind them. So that you would not step out of line. It was horribly painful. The Assyrians were, were a brutal, brutal nation. And he says in verse 3, you will go out through breaches in the walls. They're going to just take you out through the holes that they make when they come and, and conquer you. Each one straight before her, you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. You cows of Bashan. Only the Lord can get away with calling a bunch of women cows. Okay, Husbands, don't do it. It will be the biggest mistake of your life. Hey, cow of Bashan, can you get in here and bring me a turkey pot pie? Don't do it. (laughs) Bashan was famous for rich pasture land and literally fat cows. And so the women of Samaria, God is calling them out. He says, you're acting like a bunch of proud heifers. You're sitting back there with with your beverages calling, honey, fill me up, fill me up. And Hosea hinted at the same problem. He said in Hosea chapter 10, verse 11, Ephraim is a trained heifer who loves to thresh. But I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. And note this, you cows of Bashan, the word cows is, it's not steers, it's not oxen, it's not in the masculine form, it's the word para, and it is a feminine word meaning the female cow. And so he's really going after, it's interesting because so much... Men get, you know, we get beat up in the scriptures. Come on, I mean, let's, let's be honest. We do. It's just nice that it gets to the women sometimes. <laughs> you know, I read this and I go, okay, all right, three verses. Yeah. Cows. <laughs> them, not any of them. <laughs> what is Harmon? He, he says, I, I will cast you to Harmon. And it's an uncertain word. It is only used once in the Bible, only used by Amos. And so they're not sure what it means. Um, it, it seems to be like another Hebrew word that means a high or an exalted land. So it may be Mount Hermon. And Amos may be making a play on words here. I'm going to cast you to a high place. When they took the people into captivity, they went by way of Mount Hermon. So they would cross over the foothills of Mount Hermon and, and many would be cast onto Hermon and die right there. So maybe that's it. Uh, the King James translates it a palace or a citadel. That's a possibility, I guess. Um, or Hermon might be uh, a city somewhere in Assyria, unknown to us, but that's the best we can do with that one. Verse 4, enter Bethel and transgress. 
in Gilgal multiply transgression. Remember Bethel, golden calf, Gilgal, school of the prophets, holy place. He says sin is happening all over. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering from that which is leavened, which is a picture of sin. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them known. For you love to do. You sons of Israel. Declares the Lord God. As we saw and talked about on Sunday. Israel had lots and lots of religion. And no faith. And we see that in our world today. Don't we? Boy there's a lot of religion. It's not a lot of faith. Which is why Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes. Will he find faith on the earth. Verse 6, But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Doesn't mean he sent them to a dentist. (laughs) It means that they had nothing to eat. I brought famine. Cleanness of teeth and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So I sent famine, and you didn't return to me. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. And then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied, yet you have not returned to me. Now he's talking about drought. And selective drought. Now I don't know how specific this is, but that's interesting to me. If two cities side by side, one's getting pouring rain and plenty of water and the other is dry as a bone, you're going, okay, that's not natural. (laughs) Must be supernatural. He says in verse 9, I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. And the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. So now he said I brought humidity and infestation. Yet you have not Return to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. And I made a stench of your camp, or the stench, rise up in your nostrils. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So plagues and warfare. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from the blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. <laughs> Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Some might say, I understand the Lord's dismay. Okay, I I, I really do. I get that. But famine, drought, humidity, infestation, plagues, warfare, fire. I mean, Lord, isn't it a bit much? Isn't that kind of harsh for the people that you chose? Well, let's pull back a bit further. Let's see, He delivered them from Egypt. He saved them from the onslaught of the armies that they had to pass through, the Amorites and others. He fed them, protected them, cared for them, loved them in the wilderness. He led them into the promised land. He blessed them in the land. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet in many portions and in many ways to them. And they wouldn't listen. In fact, 
He says over and over and over, five times, yet you have not returned to me. How was he supposed to get their attention? How was supposed, how was God supposed to turn their heads around to listen to him when they would not do it? And so he starts out with a famine. Maybe that'll get their attention. No, that didn't work. Okay? So let's try drought. Well, clearly they're not picking this up very quickly. So we'll try humidity. And, and, all, and so all the rest gets added on, one after the other. He's trying to get the attention of the people. What does he have to do to get yours? What is he doing in your life right now? To get your attention and to keep your eyes fixed on him. And I got to admit... Some of us are more dense than others. You know, he has to work a little harder. Israel was a stiff-necked people. They had hard heads. Which is maybe why they had stiff necks because their heads were so hard. I don't know. But the Lord is trying to get their attention. He does thing after thing after thing. But you know, in this whole section, even though he's describing all of these serious judgments, it doesn't sound like the voice of an angry God. Because for every judgment He says, but you didn't return to Me. I did this, but you didn't come back. And then I did this, but you didn't come back. I'm sorry, but if you want to just talk about an angry God who's just punishing people and doing the Zeus thing, then take out all five times when He says, you did not return to Me. Because that doesn't sound like an angry God. It sounds more like, I don't know, Hosea. Homer, come on home. It sounds like a God who, it really matters to him what happens to this people. There is a big picture, my friends, that God understands that Israel apparently didn't, and many people in our world do not understand, and that is number six, this is the last one, and that is a preparation for immortality. A preparation for immortality. And here's the deal. He says at the end of verse 12, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And we can either meet Him here, or we can meet Him there. That's our choice. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. If we meet Him here, He receives us with grace. He forgives us our sin. He takes the punishment, the wrath of our sin on Himself if we meet Him here. If we determine to wait and say, ah, maybe we'll meet Him there, He will not receive us. In fact, if we say, I'll just meet Him there, He won't meet us there or here. There's no heavenly reception for someone who says, I'll just meet Him there. In fact, there is only a hellish reality. For how can two walk together unless they've made an appointment?